0: Welcome to our podcast. My name is Keeley Severson, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Eric Johnson and Alicia Swamy, and we are Exposing Mold. Today, we are here with Sherry Ayers from Real Time Labs.
1: Hello, everyone. I'd love to introduce you to Home Cleanse, formerly known as All-American Restoration. They are the first and only remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Visit them at homecleanse.com. Hello everyone, Alicia here. One of the most common questions I receive from our audience members is this, who can I trust to perform a thorough mold inspection of my home? The Mold guy performs mold inspections specifically for individuals who require a much higher standard of care owing to your complex health concerns like CIRS, Lyme, CFS, autoimmune issues, and more. Their testing and inspection process supersedes all current industry standards on purpose, making them thought leaders and disruptors in an industry unwilling to change old and outdated paradigms. Book your complimentary phone consult here at themoldguyinc.com slash connect. That's themoldguyinc.com slash c-o-n-n-e-c-t. Thank you for joining us, Sherry. Oh, well, thanks
2: for having me today. This is a really exciting <laughs> opportunity. I think you all are doing a really great thing by bringing attention to these mold issues and by having a platform that is, readily available for people to be able to find. So, thank you.
0: So, talk to us about Real Time Labs. We know that there's we know that there's a few other mold testing companies out there. How how is Real Time Labs different or how does it stand apart or tell us a little bit about your company.
2: Sure. So, Real Time Laboratories is a mold and mycotoxin testing company located in Carrollton, Texas, and we've been around for about 15 years now. And the founders of the company are two doctors, Dr. Hooper and Dr. Bolton. They met each other in medical school many years ago. And so they've been working together for a very long time. And, you know, throughout the course of their practice of medicine had encountered many situations where, you know, patients were having difficulties getting treatment or being able to get to the bottom of what was causing their symptoms. So, just you know, throughout working with these individuals, one of the things that came out as a a common factor for a lot of these people is having mold or mycotoxin exposure. And at the time, it was something that was wasn't really getting a lot of public notice. It certainly wasn't getting a lot of notice in the the medical community. There, you know, there weren't really laboratories or tests that people could take to help them evaluate their situations, and so. They founded real time laboratories as a way of, you know, giving people a laboratory that they can go to to have their mycotoxin testing done and really try to, you know, like give people another way to evaluate their situation, either, you know, rule in or rule out mycotoxin exposure as a potential cause of their symptoms. So, what we really have focused on over the years is, you know, just having that focus around the mold and mycotoxin. So there's a few other labs out there that that have mycotoxin tests, but what really sets us apart is that focus of the patient and their environment. So people who are who have been exposed to mold, you know, you can go in and you can get a laboratory test and you know see if you're have mold in your body or if your mycotoxins are coming out in your urine. But where is this exposure coming from? You know, are you, have you been exposed in your home or in, in your business or somewhere that you've been to, somewhere that you work, somewhere that you've traveled? So we also offer mycotoxin testing for homes because you need to be able to treat your home and treat your body. So this gives people another tool that they can say, now that I know where I've been exposed, how I've been exposed, how long I've been exposed. They can, you know, go through the actions that they need to either seek out a a mold remediator or an inspector to clean their home or to remove themselves from that premises altogether. Because if you're, you know, you're trying to treat your body, but you are still living in a home or going to work somewhere where you're being exposed every day to the same thing that's getting you sick, you're never going to be able to get better. Do you help people pick remediators? Uh, yes, we, we do have resources on our website that has a list of remediators that, that people can go to. So it's, you can search by geographical area. And we also have educational outreach programs that we do with our remediators to to train them and give them classes and certifications that show that you know that we've worked with them and that these are companies and experts that we trust to be able to evaluate your home and to be able to clean your home. So that way you have somewhere safe to go back to.
0: At Exposing Mold, we work a lot with the hypersensitive population. So the people that we work with don't, they're not going to get healthy from like fogging or bleaching. So I'm just wondering, do you ever hear feedback from the people that you've tried to refer to remediators where they say like, they're still not feeling well, like it wasn't a successful remediation, just because we know that there's so much failure in the remediation industry in general, no matter how perfectly it's represented. I'm just wondering if that's something that you see, because on our side of the our side of the line, we're like dealing with the aftermath of failed remediation, usually. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I think
2: sometimes we do have people who will come back and say that, their home has been remediated and they're still they're not they're not feeling well or they're still having these symptoms. And the difficulty with that is kind of twofold. Number one is, you know, do you do you still have mycotoxins or mold in your body, even though it may not be in your home anymore? Or do you in fact still have some exposure in your in your home or at your location where you were being exposed in the first place? And, you know, some of these, these mycotoxins, they can stay in the body for a long time and it can be difficult to, to really be able to, to get that all out of your body, especially if you still have mold in your body. So that's one issue. And then the other issue is that, you know, in, in the individual's home, if it has, it's been remediated, but uh, what, you know, where did the raw materials come from that your house has been remediated with? Did you have something replaced and that came from something that is also already moldy. I know that's kind of a stretch, but you know, there's so many variables involved that to say that a house has been fully remediated, you know, like this, these molds can, they can hide, they can, you know, they get into cracks, they get into your ventilation. So all that needs to be really thoroughly cleaned out. And, you know, the remediators are trained on how to, to do that. They're very good at what they do. But the fact of the matter is that There's just so much to go through that they have to be extremely thorough and extremely diligent and do follow-up testing in the home to make sure that wherever the mold was that they got it out.
0: Yeah, I have a hypersensitive patient that I work with who had like the best mold tester, the best remediation company. The house was cleared with testing afterwards and this guy's life is in shambles and it it seems to us that there's a type of immune system injury that can occur past the point of toxins showing up in the system, um, which is just something to think about on our end, you know. So can you talk to us a little bit about the validation and processing of of your test, of the test results? Yeah, sure. So Real-Time Laboratories is accredited
2: by an organization called the College of American Pathologists. And we abide by those guidelines when we're performing any validations or evaluating any tests. They have very rigorous, uh, stringent guidelines that we have to abide by. Those are even more stringent than what is required by CLIA or what is required by Medicare. So the first thing when we're evaluating a test is, you know, doing a rigorous study of publications you know doing our literature search and making sure that we have a peer reviewed sources showing us that the method that we're proposing is going to be clinical clinically relevant and then once we go from there then we perform a analytical validation the components of an analytical validation is to look at every aspect of the test and make sure that we are understanding exactly how our test is going to be performing in a laboratory. Because although there are lots of variables that, you know, as a laboratory, we can't control, we can try to educate the public about how to collect a specimen and the timing and those sorts of things. But the things that are in my control is how is the test performed in the laboratory. So that usually what that entails is purchasing a stock of you know the analyte So in this case a mycotoxin from a manufacturer so that's going to be 100% pure it's going to it's going to be something that we know exactly what it is so that's what we start with we start with something that we know exactly what it is and then the next thing that we will do from there is we perform what is called the accuracy study so for the accuracy study what we're going to do is we are going to take our pure stock that we have And we're going to measure it and verify that, okay, we think that we're detecting the mycotoxin. When we run our test, knowing that we put a pure mycotoxin in it, we get the results that we're expecting. If we run something that doesn't have the mycotoxin in it, we are not measuring anything. So that's the first thing that we're going to do to verify that our test can accurately detect the mycotoxin. The second thing that we're going to do is we're going to measure the precision. So what the precision is, is taking repeated measurements of that mycotoxin, and that can be taking measurements over several different days, having several different users perform that, doing it at different times of the day, doing it with, you know, a different set of chemicals in the laboratory that we purchased on a different day. So we want to try to capture as many of the variables as we can in this precision study to show that, okay, if. You know, I can pick two different people running the test on two different days. They are going to get the same results because, you know, we don't want to have a test that's not going to be reproducible. We want to remove that sort of variability. The next component is going to be called the limit of detection or the sensitivity. And what that is, is determining what is the minimum amount of the mycotoxin can we detect in our sample. So you start with a stock that's a high concentration, you dilute it down, you know, one one to two, one to four, one to eight, until you have a range of concentrations from very concentrated to very low concentrations. Test all of those samples and then determine, all right, the lowest amount of concentration of mycotoxin that we can find in this sample is, you know, maybe one part per billion or 2 parts per billion. And then set that as the limit of detection. That's the sensitivity of the assay. And a good assay will have a very sensitive limit of detection. There's also a test called the specificity that test that we do. So if I have 10 different mycotoxins, but I'm only looking for one mycotoxin, let's say I'm only looking for okra toxin or I'm only looking for gliotoxin, does my test detect the correct mycotoxin and only the correct mycotoxin, none of the others, because what we don't want is to have a patient that, you know, has something that is being excreted out in their urine. That's causing a false positive when we're looking for mycotoxin, but we don't want anything else to interfere with that assay. And that can be very difficult because, you know, we do our test on urine and there's a lot of, I'll call it junk. There's a lot of junk in your urine. There's proteins there's salt, there's, you know, any, any other kind of medications or metabolites that are coming out in your body that we do not want to measure those. We only want to measure the one specific thing we're looking for, which is the mycotoxin. So, you know, those are just a few of the things that we look for. We look at the stability. How long is your specimen stable in the laboratory? If you send us a specimen and we have it for a week or two weeks or a month or one day or two days or three days how long is that specimen going to be stable for before the before the integrity of the specimen starts to break down and we can't detect the analyte anymore so all of these all of these different tests have to be performed prior to being allowed to run this test in a laboratory and those are things that we do that for every every test that we run every laboratory does that um, especially if it is a laboratory developed test, meaning that the laboratory develops that test itself. It's not FDA approved, which a majority of laboratory tests that are run in the United States are laboratory developed tests. So all these guidelines that we follow are, you know, they're very standardized. They're very similar to, you know, what the FDA is going to require, what CLIA is going to require, CAP requires it. So it's very important to us that we perform all these
1: studies. Every time before we add a new test into our test menu. Awesome, thank you, Sherry. I'm just really interested in maybe clarifying what what it is that you guys actually offer. So, what it seems to sound like is that you guys are offering a urine test. Are you doing also blood testing as well? Yeah. So we have we have a few
2: different tests that we offer. The mycotoxin test is a urine test. So if you are, if you're a patient or a physician and you want to see if the patient is excreting the mycotoxins out of their body, then urine would be the best way to do that. We also have tests that can detect mold inside of the body. So we test for candida and aspergillus molds. Those are going to be either urine tests, blood tests, nasal swabs, or we've also gotten implants of various sorts. We've had breast implants. We've done breast milk. We've done facial implants of various sorts. So this is a very these tests are very robust. You can use many different sample types for them. And we we have seen all kinds of things because you know when when you have mold in your body, if you don't know where where it is or you know, exactly what you're looking for then we have several options for those individuals.
1: That's exciting uh, that you guys offer so much stuff and you're able to test so many different samples. I really want to talk about the breast milk. That's really interesting to me. Sure. Our, I mean, just as an overall picture of, of samples that you're receiving that are in particularly breast milk, are you guys seeing a high concentration of mycotoxins?
2: So we have not received many samples of breast milk. I think over the past couple of years, we've received a handful. And usually those individuals are concerned about aflatoxins in their breast milk because there is some literature that shows that aflatoxins can be passed from the mother to the child through the breast milk. In the this test that we've gotten through the laboratory for breast milk, it's been a while since we've gotten one, so I'm trying to recall off the top of my head. I believe we've had some that are either no aflatoxins present or present but at a low amount, which, you know, certainly any amount being passed from the breast milk from the mother to a child is certainly something for a parent to be concerned about. So although it's, it, you know, it's not much, it's just above the level of what we can detect, but but it's there. And so, you know, that's information that the parent That the physician can use to determine whether, you know, is is the child ill? Are they having any symptoms? Is the child sick? Is the mother sick? You know, do they expect that they've been having exposure at their home? Even if the child is not sick, then, you know, that's still something that they can be concerned about and use that information to make better healthcare decisions for their family.
1: Wow, that's really cool. You know, I'm just curious with all the samples that you receive from breast implants. I don't know if you're doing any tissue samples. What are you testing for exactly? What is there a specific group of mycotoxins that you are testing for? And or are, is there a specific type of mycotoxin that you're seeing a lot of in these samples? Yeah. So
2: unless a provider specifically orders one mycotoxin, we will test for all of the mycotoxins in our panels. We have 16 mycotoxins in the panel that we test for. Four belong to the aflatoxin family one gliotoxin, one ocrotoxin, one xerolinone, and nine macrocyclic trichothecenes. And so, you know, we see a variety. It, it really just depends on, you know, who, who the samples are coming from, where the samples are coming from. So I wouldn't say necessarily that there's a certain pattern of what we see more than the other. But I mean, certainly like, you know, we've seen all those mycotoxins come up in one sample type or another. And then we do also test tissues. Those can either be fresh tissues or tissue from a block that's taken at a hospital as part of a pathology report. So if a if a physician or a patient wants to have a tissue tested, they can send us their pathology report and you know we'll take a, a section of a tissue and we can look for candida, aspergillus and then the 16 mycotoxins in that tissue specimen. And we certainly have had tissue specimens that we have found mycotoxins in.
1: Are you testing for uh, like stachybotrys mycotoxins? Is that within the, the panel of 16 mycotoxins that you guys screen for?
2: Yes. So stachybotrys black mold produces trichothecenes. So what we see a lot of times, especially in our environmental samples, is that if a patient is having a high amount of trichothecines in their urine and they send us a sample from their home, it's not at all uncommon to see both the trichothecene mycotoxin as well as the stachybotrys mold spores in the environmental sample. Those correlate very well with each other.
1: Wow. And thank you for bringing up the environmental aspect. I, I really want to get into that as well. So you guys offer urine testing, blood testing, all of the tissue and whatever else, which is awesome. And now how does that go with the environmental testing? Do you send that test over to the patient's preferred home inspector or mold inspector? Or is it just a patient self-test, kind of like an ERMI where they take a Swiffer and then you guys analyze what's on, what's on the microfiber cloth?
3: Yeah, so
2: that's the great thing about environmental testing is that, you know, with clinical testing, there are only certain states in, there's, in the union where a patient is allowed to order their own test for themselves. But with an environmental, you know, anyone can collect a specimen from their home and do whatever they want with it. So we receive specimens from individuals that have done their own collections. We receive specimens from inspectors for homes. We receive specimens from remediators that are testing a home before and after the cleaning. We also have a lot of physicians that, sent, that will act as a physician referral. So it's almost as though they're writing a prescription for their patient to go get a sample and send it in to us, and then we'll send the results back to the physician. So anybody has the ability to, you know, take their sample from their home and send it back to us. Of course, you know, we we provide instructions on how to collect a sample properly, but really, you know, to have an inspector, a remediator, a professional do this, the professionals really know what to look for and how to identify those best places to collect from. But with that said, you know, we educate our all of our patients so that way they can, you know have the freedom to do it themselves also if they wish.
1: Yeah, that's very unique of you of real-time labs to offer, you know, bot testing for your health, but also for your home, and then having the results be correlated and, and I guess collated and sent over to your doctor for for more support. So I really do like that aspect. Kaylee, did you have a question?
0: Question about that. Do you ever see situations where you find trichothesines in the home, but not in the urine or vice
2: versa? Yeah, we we certainly do. And it's, that's kind of one of the more difficult situations to to try to help people understand why you might see, you might see a mold in your home, but you don't see the trichothesines either in your body or in your home, or vice versa. And you know, what, what it really comes down to is understanding the biology of the mold organism. So an organism may be present, but they may be present, but not necessarily producing the mycotoxins. So there will be certain points, you know, within their life cycle, or if, if they're feeling threatened by, you know, something, maybe another mold, that will induce them to be producing these trichothecines at certain times, but not other times. So that, you know, would be one reason why you might see the mold, but not the mycotoxin. Likewise, you know, the, the molds, they tend to, you know, stay, they'll grow in the wall. So it might be behind drywall or behind the paint or something. So the mold spores won't be spreading in the air. Whereas the, the trichothecines, the mycotoxins, they're much smaller compounds. and they'll, they'll float around and they'll get into your HVAC and they'll spread around. So you may be detecting the mycotoxin, but not necessarily the mold. So, you know, those are two reasons why you might see the mold, but not the mycotoxin or the mycotoxin, but not the mold. Likewise, every individual, you know, individuals all have a unique metabolism that's going to be affected by their biology, their genetics, their health, their, you know, their liver health, their age, their weight, all these things are going to affect how an individual metabolizes mycotoxins out of their body. And so it certainly would not be surprising that some people will excrete, faster and better, whereas some people may not. So that can explain some of the variation for what's coming out in the urine of those people as well.
0: Yeah. If some people are really sick and they can't detox, like their body can't let go of their toxins. Maybe they're just not being excreted, but you really got my attention with this sampling of tissue thing. So this is a weird question. I don't want to gross anybody out, but let's, let's just say in theory, okay. if someone wanted to like send you like a part of a brain from mm-hmm. like a least loved one. Could you analyze that?
2: Yes, we can. And we have
0: processed brains before. I'm just in love with this idea of being able to like, the Eric's rolling his eyes I, mean, I have a few brains I want to send to you.
1: Oh, <laughs> we would love that. We would love that. No, I mean we're going to have to figure something out with exposing mold in real-time labs, because this is, this is some cool stuff. This is, I don't hear any other labs doing this type of sampling of, of so many different things. I mean, you hear the urine, whatever, you know, the, the ERMI, but I've never heard of a a lab doing all these tests on, on various substrates. I mean, this is amazing.
2: Yeah. And it it really is. And it's, it's, it's so helpful to these people because if you have, if you have mold, inside of your body. And, you know, if it's, let's say that it's colonized inside of one of your organs, unfortunately, the only way that you may potentially be able to find it is if, you know, you've been very ill and you've had surgery and the physician is doing a pathology report to see what it is that's making you sick. And so if, if you want to see, you know, am I sick because of mold and mycotoxins in my body, you need to be able to test that tissue to see if that is where the mold has colonized.
1: I'm just curious because there, I mean, SIBO and the SIFO is like exploding, like I've never seen. It's like, as if everyone has this problem, I wonder if an endoscopy can even get down to the small intestine. And is that even, you know, can they take enough tissue for what the organism is that is actually causing the SIBO and the SIFO? Like, is it a colonization issue? Is it just an imbalance in microbes? I don't know. It's just... All this stuff is just super super fascinating.
2: Yeah, and that that is very interesting. And certainly a, a challenge with the digestive tract is that the digestive tract is extremely long. And you know, trying to to locate what's in there, being able to sample the right spot and you know, send a send a sample into a laboratory and hope that you have found what's in there is it's certainly a gamble, but it's definitely something worth trying.
1: Absolutely. I just wanted to switch gears here. Thank you so much just for <laughs> answering all of our cool or our interesting questions. I'm curious, have people used real-time labs tests for the body and for the home for any legal cases that you're aware of? We don't have to be specific of cases, but maybe just a general answer.
2: Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. So we have certainly had tests come through the lab that are used for legal cases. Every Every test kit that we send out to a Remediator to an individual comes with a chain of custody that the individual can fill out that has the exact time and date and location and address that the specimen was collected from. So that way, if there are any legal ramifications that come from that, then they can prove that the sample that we tested, we maintain the chain of custody all the way from the start from when the sample was collected up until the end from when the sample was reported. And we maintain all of our records for the sample and for the testing and for the personnel who have tested that for several years. So that way, if there's a legal case that comes from it, you know, we can, will be subpoenaed and the attorney will ask, usually what they'll ask for is they'll just be very general and say all records associated with this specimen. And they'll, you know, maybe give the, the name of the patient. Or maybe they'll give the address or they'll they'll give us some sort of identifying information. And then what we can do with that is we can pull our chain of custody and we can pull our raw data for the test and we can pull our report and we can pull any maintenance issues that we had on our instruments during that time. We can see what personnel processed that test. We can see who reported it out. And we will give all of that information over to the attorney so that way they can review it. And then if necessary, they can depose one of our medical staff to testify on that. And it happens, I would say we probably get at least maybe two to three a year that are used in lawsuits. And so, you know, knowing that, of course, integrity of our data is always important, regardless of what the use is. But when you know that it's going to be used in a legal case, then that is just, you know, one extra incentive for us to maintain the, the process from start to finish.
1: That's really great. Surprised, it's only one to two per year. I feel like the amount of mold cases we hear about (laughs) these days popping up. I would, I would think it'd be a lot more. But you know, who knows? Who knows what's on the horizon for you guys? Sounds like your testing methodology and everything is is really great. So, you know, and a lot of people hearing this, I'm sure, are going to be considering real time lapse for for any issues they may be having with their landlord or whatever. Oh
2: yeah, certainly. And I, I think that you know. You're absolutely right. You know, there's a lot of people that are living in mold, you know, houses with mold in it or going to work in a building with mold in it. And, you know, we, we do hear a lot about these lawsuits, but I think that most of these things are settled before they end up going to court. Or else people just, you know, you see a mold in your home and sometimes you don't need more action than that. Like if you see that your entire wall is covered with mold or you see something visible, a lot of times it's just as easy as contacting your landlord and saying, there's mold in my home. This violates my contract. I'm moving out and doesn't necessarily call for, you know, taking a sample of it, seeing if it's mold, sending it to the laboratory. Sometimes people are just unwilling or uncomfortable to to pay for that or to go through that effort when they, they're not educated, they don't understand, they don't know the health risks and they, you know, they just don't always understand why it's so important to maintain that, to go through the testing, to make sure that what you think it is, is what it is.
0: Eric, do you have any questions? This So I'd like to introduce you to Eric Johnson. He is our education and research director at Exposing Mold. A really interesting thing about Eric is that he is an original prototype for chronic fatigue syndrome, which was a mysterious illness outbreak in Truckee, that Lake Tahoe, that eventually was found to be connected to mold. All the buildings went bad at the same time that this mysterious illness went through. So he has a really interesting historical connection to when mold illness first started to become popularized or noticed because I think it was a while before it got popular after that. So I'd just like to hand the mic over to Eric, and he always has interesting questions.
3: That was 20 years before the medical profession started even talking about mold. The original chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak was in 1985, and mold wasn't even, toxic mold wasn't even entered into the medical literature until Croft, William Croft, in 1986, the first paper on a family in Chicago exposed to toxic black mold and even though it was entered into the literature at that time doctors it didn't really cross their radar until 10 years after that the mid 1990s when finally enough doctors were coming across this information and wondering if their strange illnesses these mystery syndromes were connected with mold unfortunately the chronic fatigue syndrome researchers all gave up too quickly so they started chasing viruses. And they created a, a legend that chronic fatigue syndrome was a viral illness and completely disconnected their investigations from the original sick buildings where the clusters of illness were. baffled the Center for Disease Control into creating this this new syndrome. And to this day, doctors have still not come back to put the evidence back into the syndrome and clear up this confusion. But one of the things we encountered was this was an illness not just of inflammation but of immune suppression. So even after inflammatory elements from trichothecines were noted, there was another element to this, the immune suppression, that didn't didn't seem to capture people's attention. And it turns out that Stachybotrys has an evil twin, chlorohalinata, that produces immune suppressing immune suppressing compounds, atronones, without the inflammatory elements so at the 2019 Fort Lauderdale Mold Congress dr chin yang described this how there are, there's an evil twin that is so similar to stachybotrys charterum that morphologically it's impossible to distinguish the two the only way to actually tell is by pcr analysis and the peculiar thing about this evil twin is that they'll think it's stachybotrys charterum every time, but it doesn't really seem to make people sick in the way that they're expecting. The neurotoxic inflammatory illness that they're looking for isn't there. And they finally realized that it's putting out an immunosuppressive substance and it's probably switching people's immune systems off, leaving them open to all other kinds of secondary infections. And this has gone unnoticed for all these years. I was hoping that after the mold Congress, some of these mold experts would raise the alarm that when you're looking at Stachybotris, maybe you won't see a mold illness, maybe you'll see immune suppression, and this will be a call to look for the afternoons, which is like cyclosporin used in transplant to re- prevent the rejection of organs. It just switches off the immune system, and you wouldn't even look for it unless you thought to know. So have you, has your organization thought about? developing a special test to look for the afternoons.
2: Well, I don't think that that's one that we've specifically discussed, but we are always, you know, reviewing the literature and attending conferences to try to expand our offerings to our patients. And so, you know, anytime that we start hearing more and more about, you know, people are becoming ill and, and are concerned about this mycotoxin or that mycotoxin or this symptom or that symptom, Certainly that is something that, you know, we're always concerned about. We want to make sure that we have a full test offering that, you know, captures all sorts of different, you know, a a wide population, make sure that there's something that you can use our test for to capture what's making you sick. And so right now we're working on expanding the organisms that we offer on our environmental panel. We're adding more mold organisms to that. So, you know, certainly we are absolutely open to the idea of looking at more mycotoxins, more mold organisms, and, and you know, especially connecting those two together, making sure that if you're sick in your home, you're sick out, you're sick, you know, out in your business, that you know, we just want to make sure we have the full picture.
3: Yeah, I worked with Dr. Richie Shoemaker for almost 20 years, and he publicized the story of Mold at Ground Zero for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome which strangely did not result in a single researcher ever coming back to clear this up. I'm kind of shocked that so many people can read his books, know about his work, see the evidence that this has gone uninvestigated for all these years without any kind of response. And Dr. Shoemaker has kind of lost interest in mold. He switched over to actinomycetes. In fact, in one of his not-so-long-ago videos, he said it appears that the Mycotoxins are relatively well excreted. And with the, the addition of a common like supplement, glutamine, you can correct most mycotoxin-induced symptoms. And he drifted over to completely focusing on actinomycetes to the exclusion of his old mycotoxin work. So are you doing anything on the actinomycetes front? And have you correlated people's symptoms or any kind of toxin? from Dr. Shoemaker's work on this, this bacteria, this filamentous bacteria?
2: No, that's not something that we've looked at historically, but I mean, you do bring up some very good points as far as the difficulties of being able to identify these organisms, that what many laboratories do is they'll do a visual inspection of the mold and they're going to be looking at, you know, the shape and how it disperses and the color and the growth and it really relies on some very specialized skills from the scientists or that individual that's performing this test it's going to rely on their experience and their education and just somewhat being subjective and saying this is what organism it is and you know we absolutely have seen before where we will get a a sample in the lab and our microbiologist will look at it. and We'll all be convinced that, oh yeah, this is definitely going to have black mold in it. And then when we go through and we do the PCR testing and it comes out and there's no black mold in it and there's no trichothecene in it, you know, it's just, it is so difficult to tell just by doing a visual inspection, what you're looking at. And so that's the other thing too, is that, you know, people will be concerned that they're being exposed to something when actually maybe they're not. And so Many, you know, there are many people that they live in, they're being exposed to mold at home and they're being ill because of it. But the same is true. Otherwise, there's also people that are ill and mold, mold toxicity is not the cause of it. And so, you know, this testing is just as important for those people to be able to rule this out also and help direct their treatment or their investigations in another direction. But I mean, yeah, you're right. It's it's very difficult to tell, especially, you know, with black mold and some of these other organisms, it looks like something, but that it may not be that.
3: We did an uh, interview with Dr. Chin Yang, who's really like the, the godfather of mold. He did all the early work and he's the one who brought this problem with the Stachybotrys evil twin, Chlorhalonata, to our attention. And he's saying that many, many times where people... Didn't really make the connection. They were sick from black mold. They're thinking that it might actually be the immunosuppressive effects of these atronomes. And if you look at the immunological findings from Stachybotrys, one thing that stands out is low natural killer cell function. The NK cells have been completely dysregulated. They're not performing their job. They're not surveilling the body looking for pathogens and acting. It's like they're wandering around confused all the time. So of course. To my way of thinking, we need to move this new information into top priority and find out if the astronauts are what are suppressing natural killer cell function. Yeah.
2: And I mean the immune the immune suppression is a real serious, real serious consequence of this. And it's something that over the past couple of years, in the the wake of the COVID pandemic, that There has been a substantial increase in the number of deaths from fungal illnesses. There was just a paper that was published in the past couple months, which showed that the death from fungal illness increased from 1.2 deaths per 100,000, all the way up to 1.8 deaths per 100,000. And that almost 22% of the deaths that have been associated, or sorry, 22% of the deaths from fungal exposure have been associated with COVID in one way or another. So, I mean, it, it really does wreak serious havoc on an immune system. And when we're dealing with a a global pandemic at the same time, for a lot of these people, it's just, it's too much for their bodies to be able to handle the, the double threat from the fungal exposure and from the COVID, especially with, you know, at-risk populations that already have other health effects, or maybe they don't have good access to healthcare. care. Or, you know, they've already had, you know, previous exposure, which has damaged their lungs somehow, it it has it has really taken a toll.
3: Yeah, and we're not even seeing doctors asking long COVID mm-hmm. patients about their mold exposure.
2: Yeah, and, and that's that's surprising to me too, is that there really hasn't, like in our experience, a lot of the individuals that come through the laboratory, you know, concerned about mold exposure, but not necessarily with other infectious respiratory diseases. And those absolutely go hand in hand because so many of them have such similar symptoms also.
1: Are you seeing a lot of long COVID patients coming to real-time labs to test for mold exposure?
2: Not entirely sure about that. I think I I would have to ask my nurses and see what their experience was to be able to better answer that question. Those are probably things that they discuss with their own providers, I think, rather than discussing with us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was another paper that recently came out too out of Nature that stated how mask wearing could actually increase fungal exposure just from exhalations and from contamination from the masks, I think, don't quote me on that, immunocompromised. And it's really funny because we see in the news, it's like, you know, the immunocompromised should be wearing masks because, you know, they have to protect themselves. But in actuality, what we're seeing is the opposite effect that wearing these masks over and over again, are actually hurting these immunocompromised patients. And it makes me even wonder, you know, the people who are in mold exposure unknowingly have some sort of colonization or, or whatever exposure. And from our team, we know that exhalations really affect people with exposures. And it's like, I wonder if this, it's this compounding factor that no one is paying attention to that we should be paying attention to instead of, you know, making these public ordinances and these orders that everyone should do this, but it's actually harming people.
2: Yeah. I'm not aware if there's been any publications on that effect specifically, but, you know, certainly when it comes to immunocompromised individuals, their bodies and their immune systems are so much different than the rest of ours that there's always a, a cause to be concerned, and you know there's so many extra steps that you need to go through to keep yourself safe. And you know, when it when it comes to COVID, we're just we're all trying to do the best that we can with the information that we have. And you know, things change daily. It's kind of steadied out a little bit now that we're a couple years into it. But it's certainly, you know, at the beginning when mask ordinances is varied by county, you know, you could drive down the street and be somewhere that had a different mask ordinance and had different rules. Rules require regarding when you wear it and when you don't. That it's it's certainly something that I think more research needs to go into that.
1: Yeah, A theory that Eric has and he's been studying this mold paradigm for the past thirty five years is that there's some sort of complement immune activation happening, like a pseudo allergy that's happening with mold exposure that has been seen in basically nanopathology, nanotoxicology, and I was. I'm just curious if you guys are open to maybe, I don't know, maybe we can have a sit down conversation about that because we're, we're developing or looking at some sort of panel that can actually identify a complement immune system activation.
0: Yeah,
2: I think, I think that's a really interesting idea and there's so much research and, you know, so many possibilities for, you know, different test options and things to look at that, Absolutely. Anything regarding the immune system when it comes to fungal exposure is certainly worth investigating.
1: Yeah, Eric is our education and research director, so that we definitely have to set up a meeting if you guys are interested. Yeah, (laughs) and uh, the evidence that the evidence that he has pulled that we can provide, and maybe develop some sort of new test that's actually showing what's going on with individuals who are hypersensitive, because Keely, Eric, and I are hypersensitive individuals we are like walking mold detectors. If we walk into a bad building, our immune system lets us know right away. And as far as we know, there is no quote unquote cure. It's almost like a peanut allergy, right? Yeah. Someone is That's forever a lifelong thing. And so what we're interested in is like, can we identify this? Can we test it? Can we measure it? And there are some thoughts. And, and like I said, Eric has a lot of resources on on the potential of what could happen. It would be cool to develop a test with you guys. I guess that's what I'm trying to propose here. <laughs> yeah. We and there are tests on,
2: on the market out there for, you know, mold allergies, IgG, IgE panels to detect your body's reaction to that. I, I would imagine that you all three probably have taken those tests before and, you know, seeing what, what your responses are, but you know, yeah, a lot of these tests have, have been around for a while and haven't really changed much since then. It's, you know, technology that we've been using for a long time. And for a lot of people works really well. But then there's, you know, some people out there that just, you know, it's it's difficult to even once you know what's going on in your body regarding allergies and hypersensitivities to it, you just you have to constantly be vigilant and be your own advocate, and do what you can to try to make your situation better.
1: Exactly. So with with that, what are you guys developing any new technologies or what's on the horizon for real-time labs in mold patients?
2: Yeah. So one, one thing that kind of came up sort of serendipitously is that when we were looking at mycotoxins to add to our panel, we came across mycophenolic acid, which is used as an immunosuppressant drug in transplant patients, goes by the name of cell So, what we've done recently is developed a test to help these patients that are immune, sorry, patients that have just undergone transplants and are taking mycophenolic acid as a medication to suppress their immune system to monitor that level of medication in the blood. And that's something right now that any patient that's taking mycophenolic acid will have to go in and get tested periodically. To see, you know, is the microphenolic acid level in their blood at a certain level? But the real challenge comes with if that level gets too high, you can have side effects from the medication. If the level gets too low, it's no longer going to be effective and you're going to have a higher chance of rejection. So, what we've done to improve that test is have an assay where immediately after taking your medication, you can monitor the patient's metabolism of it. Because, like I said earlier, There's a lot of things that affect metabolism, such as, you know, your genetics and your weight and your age and your gender and your health otherwise, that it can make it very difficult for the physician if they say, okay, well, your mycophenolic acid level in your blood, it's too high, it's too low, but why? So they can see, okay, well, are you ever reaching the therapeutic concentration? How much medication is in your body and how much metabolite also. So they can see, is it being metabolized properly and give the physician the ability to give, you know, more personalized and tailored treatment to that individual and reduce the chance of side effects and reduce the chance of rejection.
1: Fantastic. That sounds wonderful. Well, it sounds like real time is doing some great work. And I'm really excited to have you on the show today. And we really appreciate you coming on and, and answering all of our difficult questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Do you have any last time. questions for Sherry? Well, all right, my dear. If um, our audience members, if they would like to order a test from Real Time, how can they go ahead and do that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The best way to do that would be to visit our website, realtimelab.com, and from there there will be information for providers and for individuals. On how to order a mycotoxin test for your body, or how to order a mycotoxin and mold test for your home, it's very easy to navigate around there. And there's we also have our email info at realtimelab.com. You can give us an email. We have you know client service that is always manning the emails and routing those um, messages as they come in. So it's pretty easy to get a contact with us. And yeah, I, I hope to hear some feedback either from the audience or working on collaborations with you lovely hosts. I think that's a really exciting prospect. And, you know, we're always trying to to improve patient care and to improve people's quality of lives. And we'll, you know, go about doing that, however is in our means.
1: Absolutely. And uh, you know, we tend to work with the the 10 to 20% of individuals that are not successful otherwise and in treating their mold issues. And that usually stems from hypersensitivity. So I mean if we can develop something where You know, we can find that or prove that or even just validate that for someone. I mean, that would make that 20, 10 to 20%, maybe help them a lot better through their journey and not just leave them, you know, falling through the cracks and getting into very desperate situations like what we see people in. And so I'm really excited that we had you on here today and we really appreciate real time labs and and your guys' effort to help this population because, as we all know, It is a growing issue, but it's still not recognized across the board. And so the more tools that we have like this, the more information, the more people that we interview to get this this point across, to get this information out, to bring out these resources, it's really going to validate, you know, people's illnesses for them. And I know there's issues with people and their families. So having a test that shows, yes, I am sick from mold, and proving that to whoever is, you know. I guess, doubting their illness is a big step forward. Hello, everyone. I'd love to introduce you to the Exposing Mold team. We are passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold. Many mold-injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold has destroyed many lives. It has become part of our life's mission to expose this truth and educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Our work is vital because of the lack of experience and acknowledgement from mainstream medical practitioners. Keely, Eric, and Alicia have firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure, and we make sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that is performed. Our team's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to patients keep us motivated. We know firsthand just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health, the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know might be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and our team will work together to find a solution. Currently, Keely is offering environmental screenings, education on mold avoidance, Chinese medicine recommendations, and will screen you for past or current exposures. She will help you embrace mold avoidance as a lifestyle and teach you how your sensitivities and reactions act as a compass to recovery. If you need clarity on mold testing reports or remediation plans, she's your gal. Alicia specializes in developing mold avoidance strategies that meet your unique needs. She's experienced in extreme avoidance and can provide coaching for hotel, RV and trailer and campground living. Eric Johnson specializes in provider training offering mold injury, hypersensitization and patient relapse prevention education. Book your consult with one of our team members by visiting exposingmold.com slash consultations. Or you can also join our support group by visiting patreon.com slash exposingmold. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash exposingmold. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sherry. And thank you everyone for listening today. Uh, We hope that you guys tune in for more. We have some great interviews coming up in the future. And uh, yeah, we always look forward to providing you free information to help you through mold. Thanks, everyone.